Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing with Wire on the Horizon, and this chapter is called The Poison of Sin and Atonement. So we've been talking about various ways that we close our hearts and the consequences of that, and then judging others and such, and all those are types of sins, or types of just severing the relationship either between us and God or between us and others. And so now we're going to start introducing the atonement and in that we're going to discuss, well, a story and then kind of a metaphor of the story in the scriptures that shows up both in the Book of Mormon repeatedly and in the Old Testament. So I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs of this chapter because it kind of sets up for what we're going to talk about. You say, the Book of Mormon repeatedly focuses on a particular image as a metaphor of healing. The image reaches deep into the nature of human sin and its lasting effects that remain in us. Above all, it teaches the surprising lesson that the very thing that can kill us also saves us. And the story we're talking about is the story of the fiery flying serpents, which appears in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And the most surprising thing about this event is that it was, quote, the Lord who sent fiery serpents among the people. So that's presumably because they had, as it says in Numbers, spoken against the Lord. So... As the fiery serpents bite the Israelites, it kills many of them, and the ones that aren't dead, they beg Moses to intervene on their behalf. And in response, the Lord says unto Moses, he says, Make thee a fiery serpent, and fasten it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So that's from Numbers, but also in the Book of Mormon, it twice refers to this episode as a type of Christ and the atonement in Alma chapter 33 and in Helaman chapter 8. So Alma explains, he says, Behold, the Son of God was spoken of by Moses. Yea, and behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, that whatsoever would look upon it might live. And many did look and live, but few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. O oh, my brethren, if ye could be healed by merely casting your eyes that ye might be healed, would ye not quickly behold, or would ye not behold quickly, or would ye rather harden your hearts in unbelief, and be slothful that ye would cast about your eyes that ye might perish? If so, woe shall come upon you. But if not so, then cast your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God, so that he will come to redeem his people, and that he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins. So that's the story and the reference from Alma. And this is often said it's a type for Christ, but let's kind of start the discussion. So in the chapter, you kind of go into an interesting way that we can understand that. So I understand, you know, that the, the fiery serpents biting people and infecting them with venom is like sin. But then how is the answer another snake that you just lift up on a pole? That seems a little weird, so you address that a little bit in the chapter. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting symbol, and you see it on the American Medical Association. You see the serpent on the stick, it stands for healing in our culture. But why is it that 
looking at the servant would heal the people of their poison. First of all, let's talk about the poison. It's like the things that we have inside of us, our habits, the hardened hearts that we've developed and our ways of being that we've developed are slowly killing us like poison would and ultimately will kill us if we don't get healing from the poison that's working in us. And think about the various things in our lives that we do over and over again that are slowly, I mean, you know, self-defeating. They're not merely self-defeating behaviors, but the kinds of sins that just attach themselves to us, it seems, and we just can't seem to overcome them. It's that kind of sin that we're talking about. So we have this episode, and Alma says, well, this represents Christ. But it always seems strange to me that a snake would represent Christ. I mean, the snake is the symbol of evil in the Edenic story. I mean, you know, there's Satan and he's the tempter. So why does the snake become the symbol of healing? And the answer is, and, and the ancient Israelites were well aware, this is a brilliant metaphor for opposition in all things. And we'll get into this in a second about how the opposition in our lives heals us. But how do we heal a person who's actually been poisoned? So if you've been bitten by a rattlesnake or a viper that's poisonous, what they have to do is administer an antivenin. And antivenin is created by taking the poison and putting it into a host. Nowadays, we develop it primarily through animals, but it used to be developed by putting it into humans. And then it's the ability of the body to develop antibodies and the ability to overcome the poison that remains in the blood that we now use, you know, that we then use as an antivenin. So if we take and we administer the poison in slow doses to cows and they develop the antivenin, we can then create the antivenin that we've created, give that blood to a person who's been bitten, and it already contains the immune system's response to the poison so that it helps us overcome the poison. What's interesting is how fast an antivenin usually works. I mean, you know, usually within a few hours, the antivenin has overcome the poison. And so here we see that the very thing that is killing the people, the poison, is what also saves them when we administer it, the blood of another that has overcome that poison. And so this is a perfect symbol and metaphor for what Christ is doing. Remember the many places in the New Testament and the Book of Mormon where we apply the blood of Christ to us to overcome our sins. And so what we're doing when we do that, the ancient Israelites believed that the life of a person was actually located in the blood. And so this life force, and they were, remember, they were vitalists in this sense, so there's this life force in the blood, and this life force is in Christ's blood. He has the life force of eternal life, and he has the life force of a perfect life. And so when we apply his blood to us, it's like an antivenin that overcomes the evil and the sin that is within us. Now, obviously, it's, it's a metaphor and a symbol, and you know, so we have to ask ourselves, what's literal about this? And what's literal about it? is that the life is in the blood in the sense that Christ's life enters into us when we become a Christian. This isn't a metaphor. This is literal. His life enters into us, and we give our lives to be in him so that we're then united, and in the atonement, we overcome our separation and our alienation. And the sin that's in us that creates that separation is basically done away. Now, it's not done away automatically when if we just say, oh, you know, holy Jesus, save me. But if we truly open our hearts to Christ and allow his life into us, then we, we are engaged in a process of repentance. Um, the minute we become aware of 
our sinfulness before God. And, and, and let me talk concretely about, you know, what this looks like. Every single one of us has done things that we're not proud of, but we've also done things that we're downright ashamed of. And repentance comes when we just, we feel this kind of deep sorrow for what we've done. We realize how badly we've hurt others in our lives, or we realize how badly we've hurt ourselves or, or you know, our potential. So we're willing to do whatever it takes to overcome and change so that we live a new life. This recognition of looking with a, you know, we open our hearts to Christ and the recognition of looking is a part of the process of recognizing that my life is not the way that I wish it to be. And I have to heal this. And the way I heal this is by going to the people that I've harmed, asking their forgiveness, asking them what I can do to re-earn their trust and heal the harm that I've created in our relationships. This is often very tender between people who love each other deeply. It's one of the great things about being in a marital relationship. There's so much to learn from these relationships. But learning to forgive and be forgiven is, I think, one of the chief teachers for us to become more like Christ. And so our spouses become our greatest teachers. There's not a single spouse in the world that hasn't been hurt at some time or another by their spouse who hasn't been treated shoddily or in a way that is less than loving. And these are the people that we say we love most, at least generally we say we love most. And so, you know, it's the very people that we love most who pay the highest price to be in relationship with us generally. Looking at this metaphor, it's a very concrete wake-up call to apply the atoning blood of Christ. I love this. It's this simple. We open our hearts to him. All we have to do is look in faith and open our hearts. And we will be saved from the sins that beset us because to open our hearts to Christ is to allow this life to enter into us and begin to work in us. All right. And you also mentioned that basically the thing that's causing the people in the story to not just turn their head and simply look is stubbornness, like it says, because they didn't think it could be that easy. Or, But you boil it down to what we've been talking about a lot in the last few episodes, which is a hard heart. So obviously this is, you know, kind of a metaphor. I don't know, I guess the story might have really happened, but the thing that we can get out of it now is that it's so simple because the relationship is offered from Christ and his offer to say, come be in relationship with me and use my blood to cleanse what's ailing you, basically. Any burden, any sin or damage to relationship, I have taken that in me and, you know, as you say with the anti-venom, defeated it, defeated your sin, and I'm trying to give it back to you in this form of my healing blood but a hard heart again is the only thing that can prevent because it's so easy it seems like it's easy to say at least but for some reason it seems so hard why do you think it is so hard for some people yeah i'll tell you why it's hard let's look at a real life application i mean i can't tell you how many times i've been here i have an argument with my wife and i'm just really upset but i have to prove that i'm right and i i'm thinking the whole time what an idiot i'm being but i just have to be right i can't give it up and so I just hold on to it, and I refuse to go ask her forgiveness and say I'm sorry. And we've all been here. And then we feel, I mean, we feel it inside of us. Our hearts are softening. Our hearts melt. And we finally just open up and let go and say, oh, I've been an idiot. You know, forgive me. I'm sorry. And so this is how this looks in real life. It's really that easy. Just letting go of the need to always be right, the need to overlord somebody else, the need to control somebody else, the need to show how great we are and to put them down. You know, the kinds of things and the games and the ways that we are in relationship with those that we love the most. That's what having a hard heart looks like. It's, it's this kind of stubbornness, having to hold on and 
maintain our grudges and maintain the notion that we've been properly offended and we're not going to give up our offense and they're the ones who have to pay. You know, just saying, you know what, it's just not worth it. (laughs) And softening our hearts and realizing that the real solution here is to let the life of Christ enter into us, but it's also to let the lives of others into our lives and to let the healing arise and to get rid of our judgments. So what we do is we heal by opening to unconditional love where we judge others as worthy of our love just the way that they are. They don't have to change anything. So that's what Paul called justification. It's justification as being in right relationship and being accepted as one is without having to change anything. And this kind of love that we give and that we receive is a sheer gift. It couldn't be given in any other way. If somebody had to earn our love, it wouldn't really be love. If we had to earn their love, it wouldn't really be love. Love can only be given as a gift. And so that's how atonement is in our lives. We give ourselves to be in Christ. He gives ourselves to be in Him. But we also give ourselves to each other. We give our willingness to trust in being in relationship without demanding some proof that a person is worthy of that. This is a very valuable gift. But always giving our love. Now, the tougher part is what does that love look like? And that's a much larger discussion. But basically willing the best for the other person, believing that the person is doing the best that he or she can in the circumstances, and the willingness to see this person as not merely equal in dignity and right, but worthy truly of our commitment to their best interests and for the overall goodness of their lives. So it may be that there are people who are engaging in self-destructive behaviors. We don't support them in their self-destructive behaviors. We support them in their healing so that they stop self-destructive behaviors. But that too is a commitment to the project of their life so that they have, and this is it, the overall best life possible. And here's the problem, and and this is another very large discussion. We don't want to substitute our judgment and vision for what their life should be for what their vision of what their life is. They're entitled to create the vision for their life and to live what they choose, and we're not entitled to run their lives for them. So this is a very delicate matter that must be done in the spirit, that must be done in the spirit of love and acceptance and non-judgment realizing that, you know, what it means is I'm not making your life choices for you, but I will make decisions where you're destroying your life for the lives of others around you. And so this has concrete real-life applications. When we apply this, we heal. And it's so easy. We just open and soften our hearts. It's a movement that we do all the time. And I say it's easy. Sometimes it's really, really hard because I just can't quite give it up yet. But that's the real-life reality of what we're dealing with. Yeah, I think we've all been there with like what you described earlier is like, you know, you shouldn't be doing the stupid thing that you're doing, but you do it anyway. But you know, that's what we're all working on here. We're we're here trying to learn how to basically not do that and to actually do what Christ would do and to be loving. At, I mean, all the time is the goal, but you know, let's say as much as possible with being human. Love is always the answer. I mean, the problem with love is that it doesn't give us the answer as to how we address all of our problems, but it's always the answer. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.